Welcome to Devils in the Dark with me, Helen Anderson. And me, Danny Howard. In every episode, we're going to be turning back the clock and looking at some of the worst murder cases in history. In this episode, we're looking into the most dangerous woman in British history. It's Joanne Dennehy. You know, we're now we just have to accept that we live in a world where Ed did his thing last time. So that's fine. Apart from that, you good? Yeah, I'm okay. Did you have any nightmares? <laughs> Doesn't take much, to be fair. <laughs> I was considering getting a new set of lamps. Yeah? What 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 uh what shade? Skin. <laughs> <laughs> In this episode, we're going to be looking at the most dangerous woman in British history, which is Joanne Dennehy. So it's not as gruesome as our previous episode, but I think it is provoking. After doing my research on Joanne, I genuinely felt enraged. Like if I was to create a dartboard or if, you know, in more recent times, axe throwing board, because that's, that's real fun, isn't it? Yeah. We did that for your birthday, we wouldn't did. you? Um, I'd probably put her face on it. Oh, heck. Yeah. Oof. Wait, is that bad? Is that is this me going down Helen the murderer route? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, like, I don't hate her. I just want to throw axes at her head. <laughs> what did she do? <laughs> We're about to find out, Danny. It's March 2013, so relatively recent oh yeah i was surprised by that as well a local man is walking his dog near peterborough and he's about to discover something in a ditch lays the body of a man and he's been stabbed to death a killer is on the loose the killer is Joanne Dennehy, and she's killing for the thrill of it. Is she? Mm -hmm. Yes. No. I mean, no, stop it, Joanne. She's with her henchmen, Gary Stretch and Mark Lloyd, and she wants to have fun. She targets a man walking his dog. He's done nothing, he's just walking his dog, and not only does she stab him to death, she then steals his dog. I think she's, she's somebody who perhaps has always enjoyed hurting other people. It's almost like she's this crazy scientist and the world is her experiment. In the space of 12 days, she'd managed to kill three men and stab two others in broad daylight just because, just because she wanted to. So let's go back to the start. Joanne, she was born in 1982 in St Albans. Albans? Hang on. Yeah. 1982? Yeah, 1982. She's the same age as my husband. That's I, mad. Yeah. Okay, this right. is modern. Okay, yeah. hang on. I'm just preparing myself then. So she was born in St Albans, Albans. Is it Albans and Albans? I don't think it matters really. I feel like from. it's quite posh there. So St Albans. Albans and Hot. St Albans. Hotfordshire. So it's a, it's a nice area of Hot, the country. Hotfordshire. Okay. Mm-hmm. And she grew up with two siblings... And it was a really normal family. Nothing out of the ordinary. 
Her mum worked in a supermarket and her dad was a security guard. Um, this is Jeffrey. he's an author, and he's huge in the true crime community. So he has the inside track. The inside scoop. She had a sister to which she was very close. Uh, they had even developed a secret language. Uh, she was uh, she played netball for the school. Um, she was a very normal, quite bright schoolgirl. You know, I looked up a picture of her when she was a little girl. She looked so cute, like just a really sweet little schoolgirl, just innocent, pretty young girl who probably had a similar upbringing to me. You know, nice, nice little house. Nice family. But, you know, as she got older, she began to rebel in quite a big way. She started to experiment with drugs. She started not going to school. And she linked up with a man called John Trina. I mean, can relate to some of that. Maybe not all of it. But, you know, it seems like teenagery kind of thing to do. Average, except for the man called John. Yeah. Yeah. And all the drugs. Her parents... <laughs> In an attempt to try and pull her away from all this, as you can imagine, they weren't particularly impressed with her behaviour. It actually had the opposite effect, which made her want to go do it more. Christopher Berry D wrote, Love of Blood, the true story of notorious serial killer Joanne Dennehy. He knows exactly what she was like as a teenager. Her parents, they were at their wits end. They didn't know what to do. Uh, they tried to keep her locked up or bring her home from school. The teachers tried to reprimand her. And the more they tried to control Joe, it was Joe saying, stuff you. And it, it was li literally like throwing petrol on a fire. I don't think she was saying stuff you, was she? <laughs> she was saying worse than that. <laughs> yeah. I know, when, when you were a teenager... Were you quite rebellious? Yeah, I was terrible. 16, horrific. I absolutely feel bad for my mum. Mm. Yeah, dreadful. Anything they said, I was doing the opposite. I still feel sorry, mum. Most of the time, I was not where I said I was. Mm, same. I must admit, like, I was a shithead when I was a teenager. Like, I told my mum I was doing having sleepovers and going over for dinner and all that kind of stuff. And or, you were having lovely... sleepovers, Helen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I told my mum I was doing things which I really wasn't. I just kept it on the low key. Whereas yeah. Joanne here, she's just like, fuck you guys. I'm going to do what I want, when I want. And you can't stop me. She ran away with John. And then they had two kids together. Oh. And then they settled in Cambridgeshire. They described John as a man. Mm. I'm assuming that means that he is older. Yeah. It's always the old ones. Dr. Elizabeth Yardley says Joanne only became more destructive. I think quite a lot is made of the fact that Joanne Dennehy misused alcohol and, and drugs, but, but I think she's well aware of the fact that this is going to be discussed, and she knows that these offer quite a convenient excuse for her behaviour. And alcohol and drugs and other substances can disinhibit, but that's assuming that people have got those moral standards to begin with, and Joanne Dennehy didn't have them in the first place. She's basically just a terrible person that's blaming alcohol and drugs for her bad behaviour. But it wasn't the case at all. She was just awful. Right. Years passed and she became more erratic. She cheated on John. Ugh. She would leave for random periods of time. She's got kids. She'd just bugger off somewhere else. Um, and she drank lots and she hid a knife in her boot. <laughs> what? what? <laughs> She drank lots and hid a knife in her boot. 
<laughs> you make it sound like a like a cowboy. There's a, there's a knife in my boot. <laughs> like the two good. She just smash loads of vodka and stick a knife in her boot. Oh, Joanne, what are you like? Right, so, okay, she's drinking, she's got knives in her boots. <laughs> what happens next? Well, in 2009, John took the children and he fled from Joanne, which is fair enough, because mm. he was afraid of what she might do next. Start sticking forks in her boots. <laughs> the company that she was keeping as well, she was surrounded by people who were similarly disconnected. So, so I think when there was no check or filter or break on her behaviour, she was only going to get worse. She was always at the police station for various drug offences and she also got 12 months community service for owning a dangerous dog. I didn't oh. know that that wasn't a thing. I just thought you were just slapped on the hand for having a bad dog. I guess, does it mean that the dog did something dangerous or it's just like, you don't, that doesn't just happen for like owning a Rottweiler, maybe, does it? Maybe she like did some bad stuff with the dog, set on people. Scary woman with a scary dog. With a knife in her boot. <laughs> Yeah. Cutlery everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Then in 2012, she spent three days in a psychiatric unit. And during her stay, she was diagnosed with a series of disorders. Liz, my mate Liz, she knows more. She has had various diagnoses attached to her. Antisocial personality disorder, psychopathic personality disorder. And these are our conditions. They're not mental illnesses. And there's a real important difference between the two because people with personality disorders know the difference between right and wrong. They're, they're fully rational, they're in control of what they're doing, but they choose to do it anyway. So she's not somebody who feels bad, who feels remorseful, who regrets things. She does what she wants to do and she doesn't care about the consequences. And I think that that's a really interesting explanation because there is a, defin like a definite difference between people with mental health issues and then people with personality disorders because this basically summarises the fact that she is just evil. She's just a nasty, nasty person. She's actively making choices. Yeah, and right. she doesn't have anything to... Like, she doesn't have a, a reason as to why she's acting up. Like, it's not like she had a, a troubled childhood or she experienced abuse and she just has a warped sense of reality. She just is a bad person because she chooses to be a bad person. In 2013, she then settled down, and she, by this point she was 31, so she was like, outrage, essentially. And she got a room in a bedsit in Peterborough, so it was like a housing complex which houses a bunch of different people that are out of sorts or need help. And her neighbours had no idea what she was like or about her past at all. This next person, this is Michelle, and she was one of Joanne's new neighbours, and she says at first, it was all looking good. She was well-spoken to me and never swore. She was actually quite pleasant, do you know what I mean? I showed her respect. She loved babies. She was excellent with children. I didn't have a problem with her. She was polite to me. It's definitely showing signs already of her having, like, a personality disorder as previously mentioned because she knows how to act around certain people. Yeah, it sounds like she's quite smart in what she's yeah, the she's way she puts herself giving some people out a there. false sense of security, I suppose. Mm. But there were other neighbours that were more 
wary of her. So Michelle's friend, John Chapman, he lived in the same building as Joanne. He was a Falklands war veteran who'd fallen on hard times. I don't know what regiment he used to be in. I should know, because the man of stories used to say, it's just John being smiley all the time and happy and like, nice to know. He was always wary of Joanne. He must have just got the vibe and he always thought that she had it in for him. Michelle remembers what John told her anyway. John was petrified. John came in mind and he said, on several occasions, there's this mad woman moved in. She says she's going to get rid of me whatever way she can. And he did have the right to be afraid. It was a shared bedsit she was living in and it was managed by a guy called Kevin Lee. He was a father of two kids and he lived in the town with his wife, Christina. He basically helped people that were going for a hard time find somewhere to stay and he rented out these rooms to them. So he was like a good Samaritan. His wife, Christina, she remembers when they took on Joanne. To her, she said Joanne was just another person falling on hard times and her husband, Kevin, wanted to help her out because he was a sucker for, for people like that, essentially. Kevin used to house disadvantaged people. So he'd done it for years and obviously was used to giving people chances. Um, and so he did with, with her. Kevin and Joanne's relationship quickly grew and they eventually went into business together. So he employed Joanne as a rent collector because she was well art. So he would mm. ask her to knock on people's doors asking for the money that they owed him. Obviously, I wasn't aware at the time. To me, it would have been just another tenant. And he just said about this woman and that she's really tough. He needed to evict some people because he wasn't getting any joy from the council. So I think she had a bit of wellies and, you know, a really big mouth and threatening. And I don't know whether that, at the time, he thought that was his only way out and to deal with these people. So Kevin let Joanne stay in his bedsit. He employed her. But then he became infatuated by her and they became lovers. So he had an affair with Joanne. Kevin. I know. In exchange, she lived there for free. She had she had two of his bedsits that she got for free. She's obviously, she knows what she's doing. Yeah. She's a manipulator. Ooh. Yep. Christina, his wife, and author Jeffrey Wansall said that Dennehy would make up unnerving stories to tell Kevin. So at one point she told Kevin Lee her father had abused her and that she'd killed him. Absolute nonsense, of course, never did anything of the kind. She was neither abused nor did he, was he dead. But she was also a pathological liar. Kevin just said about her that um, she spent eight years in prison because he raped her as a child, abused her as a child. Um, it's not unbelievable story, but then when Kevin said that she'd also killed other people and that she hadn't got caught for those. It sounded a bit far-fetched. I just I didn't know what to think. I didn't know whether it was a truth or whether it was just a load of old rubbish. I don't know why Kevin went near her, if I'm being honest. If they're the kind of stories that she talks about, that's her small talk. It's not attractive, is it? No. We're like, oh, yeah, I killed my dad. Oh, hey, baby. <laughs> All right. Many no. Kev's got issues as well. I don't know. Like, he looked like a really regular kind of guy. I know you shouldn't really judge people on their appearance, but he just looked like a normal, nice man that was doing nice things for people. Joanne, however, 
She just looked rough as fuck. <laughs> like, you Google her now. She's not. You can just tell that the drugs have done her face a bit, isn't it? She doesn't look as haggard as I thought she would. No, I'm just thinking about like the fact that she could seduce so many guys, but she looks scary. I look mean. Is that kind of a turn on? You get some guys that actually like it, like sort of enjoy the thought of a woman who... Mm, maybe it was. Like a strong woman. Mm-hmm. So she was obviously talking about murdering people. that She'd done it. She had a history of it. But she was actually finally now going to make this a reality. Her first victim was just around the corner. So she met a guy called Lukas Slabovzewski in March 2013. And, you know, they've been texting. And then they finally agreed to meet at one of her the places that she was living. Because she had a choice of two places. So he went round hers, and that was the last time that he was seen alive. No. Mm -hmm. She almost certainly lured this man with the promise of some kind of sexual favour. But without a moment's hesitation, she stabbed him through the chest once, very, very hard, killing him almost instantly. She stabbed him hard enough that it... Killed him pretty much instantly. Like, that's a lot of force. Mm. And also, she just did it. And the poor guy, he thought that they were in a relationship. And he completely fell for her. And he went over her house. And Lucas. I know. According to author Christopher Berry D, Lucas was completely enchanted by her spell. Everybody that comes into contact with Joanne Dennehy, it's like falling into a spider's web and you can't get out. Men can't get out. They become entranced by her for all sorts of reasons. This is what I want to know. I'd quite like to meet her to just to see how she is. Yeah, like, is she charming? Like, is she super charismatic? I've never entranced anyone. You entranced me. <laughs> You're kind. <laughs> Thanks. But it's like... Well, they make a, the spider's web. It's all very, like, magical. Like, mm -hmm. it's quite sexy. Yeah. To have that sort of, that power over people. Mm -hmm. To sort of be able to make them do what you want. Mm. And if what that what you want them to do is die, like, that's not something that happens every day, is it? No. Or that's not some, something that happens to everyone. I think she was just really intelligent she knew how to speak and work people and play them manipulate yeah. yeah like and she was able to turn into different characters to suit different people in a really smart way not a cringe way yeah to entrance oh, and law like a siren heck but she had just then committed her first murder and she absolutely showed no regard for that at all she didn't care which was very on brand for her mm. Danny, he puts this poor Polish man's body in a wheelie bin and then shows it to a 14-year-old. And so, look how, how clever I am. I've killed this man in the wheelie bin. <laughs> what? Hey, kid, do you, want to see, do you want to see this guy? I've got this guy in a wheelie bin. You what? I know, it's just a bit, that's a bit inappropriate, isn't it? Bit inappropriate. Also, also like, really stupid. <laughs> well, yeah, it depends. I just killed this guy. I guess it depends what your end game is. If you want to get away with it, fucking stupid to show off the guy in a wheelie bin, mm -hmm. for starters. Mm -hmm. But if, you, if you're proud of it, be like, hey, look, I told you I killed someone, that I'm capable of killing someone. Now give me that fiver 
from that bet we made. Yeah, told you. Told you I'd do it. She didn't keep him there, though. She called her friend Gary. He's called Gary Stretch, which I know, side note, Gary Stretch was really, really tall, which I find quite funny. Oh, that's not a nickname. No, no, he's called Gary Stretch and he was seven foot, three inches that tall. That is not real. And his last name is Stretch. That's not real. Poor Gary. He'd been an unsuccessful burglar. I can imagine from his <laughs> Yeah, because it's like a giraffe trying to steal things. He is not a subtle man. Seven foot three. An unsuccessful burglar. He was also infatuated with Joanne. Gary Stretch and Joanne Den, he met uh, when both of them were on parole from prison for various offences. She realised that she could use him to do whatever she wanted. Um, he was her bodyguard, her minder. Um, and that's how they formed this team, which became so overpowering for Stretch that he would do anything for her. I don't think Joanne Danny had any emotional feelings towards her accomplices whatsoever. They were useful to her at the time and, and she'd just cast them aside when she was finished with them. I can really picture their relationship, like her not having any interest in him sexually or romantically and him being infatuated with her, like would do anything. Yeah. And you, that's the type of man that you would target. I mean, I if you're going to go around murdering people. So he did. He did help her out. They both dumped Lucas's body in a ditch oh. out in rural Thorny Dyke, which was 10 miles away from Peterborough city centre. You ready for this? Yeah. Just a week later, she struck again. Oh, no. Sorry, I'm just getting emotional. What did she do? So, you know John Chapman, the veteran that lived in her, ha her oh, bed Oh, John. Yeah, so she, apparently, she claimed that he walked in on her in the bathroom because they had a shared bathroom in between their rooms. Right. And he, he walked in on her. Don't know what she was doing, but he walked in on her and she didn't like that at all. John Chapman was an inoffensive kindly man who may have been asleep or in an alcoholic stupor when Dennehy killed him. She did so by stabbing him once in the neck, severing his carotid artery, and then five times in the chest with such force that one wound broke the breastbone. Um, it also punctured his heart. That is fueled with so much hatred and anger to even be able to do it to that intensity and that degree. Yeah, and I mean, to be fair, like, if you've stabbed someone in the neck, she went for the neck first, mm -hmm. that's your killing blow, isn't it? You're mm -hmm. not coming back from that, a stab in the neck. Nope. Um, but then five more in the body, that's not, I'm trying to kill this man, that's just, I'm enjoying this, or yeah. I'm stabby. It's definitely a thrill. She seeked a thrill out of that. Like, cool. she, she got her first taste with Lucas, and now she's like, hang on, this is fun. Which is so fucked up. Yeah. She was now in the middle of her killing spree. Her next target was Kevin, the landlord. No! Mm -hmm. Kevin's wife, Christina, was the first to notice that something wasn't right because he didn't come home. He was very much like a 
come home from work, tea on the table, pyjamas on. It was quite sort of traditional and old-fashioned in that sense. I tried to ring him and his phone wasn't on, which was odd in itself. He'd never have his phone switched off because it's, that's, that was his livelihood, that was his business. She did know that he'd been threatened by Joanne a few days before, but he didn't take it seriously. Kevin did tell me that she told him that she wanted to kill again. And I think that was the crucial thing because it wasn't just a case of bragging or mentioning that she'd committed murders in the past. It was the fact that she specifically told him she wanted to kill again. Why? She's she's proud. She showed a 14-year-old a dead well, body in a wheelie yeah. bing. She, she's... But then also, why was he not like, I feel like I should tell someone about this. Mm. She keeps telling me she's killed people. Well, because they were together, you know? Even worse. <laughs> it might feel like, Helen, got this bloke in a wheelie bin, killed him. And you've gone, all right, all right, Phil, like, one off. We'll carry on, right? <laughs> and then you've gone, he's come over and he's like, Helen, I really liked it. Oh, I want to do it again. <laughs> At what point are you not like, Phil, bit murdery <laughs> like you're a bit murdery and and you'd go all right dear just to stay alive but then surely once you're out of the house once he's out of the house he's gone to work by helen might have killed someone by the time i go home mm. don't know mm. you've told someone i've someone. definitely told the group chat you're getting it, you're getting it from somewhere <laughs> help me like, kev's got a wife at home he could be like christine i've done a bad thing here but she is batshit Right, she keeps telling me she's killed these people. I don't know if half of it's right, but she's told me she wants to do it again, and I am afraid. Mm. And if you were Christine, you would have to be like, "Oh, Kev, I'm very disappointed, but <laughs> I'm also quite frightened." Why you is... do pick them, Kev? Oh, Kev, uh, where's the alarm bells? How is they? They're all that infatuated that it's just like exactly. Oh. This is it. This is why this is such an interesting case because she is she's got them all wrapped around her finger. They're like, yes, that's fine. I am baffled. So as you can imagine, like if Baker didn't come home from work, Christina, she's pretty worried because a few hours have passed and he he's not home for dinner. He's not had his pyjamas on. So she reaches out to Kevin's business partner, Paul Creed, to help track him down. I asked Paul to look at Kevin's phone records. So he gave them to me and there was a number that kept appearing on the telephone and I said to Paul, I said, um, which houses are empty at the moment because I need work doing to them? And he gave me a list and I subsequently just went round to each of those properties. So she knew something wasn't right and so she started hunting, but it was in vain. Joanne had already stabbed Kevin to death. It was in the same house in where she killed Lucas. With Gary, she called in more help, Leslie Layton, and they left the bodies of John and Kevin on the outskirts of town. John was left at Thorny Dyke, the same spot as Lucas, and then Kevin, he was left 10 miles further north near Newborough. Oblivious to this, Christina Lee, Kevin's wife, she was becoming increasingly anxious, as you can imagine. I rang the police, then I went back with Paul Creed to one specific house because I noticed that the light wasn't on and then it was on when we went back later 
So I thought there's obviously somebody at the house and I just said to the police, you know, I'm really worried, expressed my concerns and gave them permission to break into the house, which they did. So they went into the house at Ralston Garth and the police immediately sensed that something was wrong? They said that they could smell... There was a really strong smell of bleach and they could see some blood on the floor and, you know, I just knew. The next day, police were called to farmland in Newborough by a dog walker, the dog walker, and he'd found the body of Kevin Lee in the ditch. Christina was beyond shocked. You know, you see it on TV all the time, the dreaded knock at the door, um, and then two detectives came, and... Obviously, he had not been identified at that point, but they just said that they'd found a body, which, you know, I was expecting to hear that. So they just kind of told me what I was expecting to hear. You don't feel anything, because you... ..cos you know. And it's a feeling that you've never felt. So, you know, where some people might think you'll be doing this, you'll be doing that. I don't know, it's just kind of a blur, really. You're just alive, I think that's... But not alive, you're just existing. That's horrible, isn't it? That was really sad. Yeah. You just can't... I don't even want to think about it. I'm not even going to think about it. Especially when it's in the back of your mind and you're like, yeah. I know... To just sort of have that hope ripped away from you is, yeah. is really awful. Mm-hmm. And um, to not... Uh, she didn't know about the affair or anything this no. point, did she? To not know why or how or who. Yeah. Horrific. So after that, they found his burnt-out car and Christina, she'd also given them Joanne's phone number and they were quickly able to make a connection. They must have been trying to call it to and using their systems or whatever must have tracked it down through GPS that the location of Kevin's burnt-out car was where this mobile had been. So it was quite obvious that she'd been there. They realised that he knows somebody called Joanne Dennehy and there was an affair between them. And then they came across a man called Leslie Layton, who they interviewed... He tried to cover up, he didn't know anything about them, where they were, which in fact he did. He soon cracked because he was weak-willed, spineless. And he said, yes, Dennehy and Stretch are on the run. They've gone east and they'll probably come west. And with that, the police went wallop. They, they issued a national wanted alert for every agency in the country to find these, this couple as quickly as possible. This excited her. Like... They were now wanted criminals, her and Gary, and she wasn't afraid of being caught. She actually quite liked the attention and it was thrilling for her, like probably a fantasy from a movie or something. She thought she was having a main character moment. And hold on to your seat, Danny, because her and Gary ended up coming to Norfolk. (gasps) Really? Yeah, they came here. No. They robbed a house to shake the police to get them all aggravated. Why would you do that? Because Gary's already failed at burglary. And then they left here. Thank God. They went across to Hereford 
And they wanted to sell the things they'd stolen to fund their escape. So they obviously succeeded at stealing things like Gary learned from Carl. Well done, Gary. You've made it. And they stopped 20 miles outside of town to meet with Mark Lloyd. They get an accomplice or a friend of theirs to bring the stolen property into Hereford Town to sell it. And it's at that point that Dennehy decides she wants to kill again. So she's got the itch. If all of that isn't enough, it's only been four days since John and Kevin. And on April 2nd, Joanne and Mark, they enter a shop in Hereford and they pointed at the cashier in a threatening manner. And the footage of that was captured on CCTV. And then 10 minutes after this, she goes for another man. She had this terrific anger and bloodlust. She's had a quarter bottle of whiskey. And she suddenly sees a man walking his dog in broad daylight. And she says to Stretch, stop, we stopped the car, I want to kill him. Brandishing a knife, then he jumps out of the car and runs up behind him and stabs him in the back. Oh, yuck. Yeah, like, she just went to the corner shop and then broad daylight just stabs the guy who's walking his dog. He was Robin Berussa. He was 63, retired fireman. It was a completely random attack, and Jeffrey knows exactly what she said to him as she stabbed him. You knew exactly how she, what she intended to do. I'm going to kill you, she said to the fireman. I want to hurt you. I'm going to kill you. And she plunges this five-inch lock knife into his back time and time and time again. The man thought he'd been punched. He turned around and saw her covered in his blood. He collapsed. She calmly walked away and got in the car and said to Stretch, no, let's go and find somebody else. And then, to top it off, she posed for a selfie. What? She stabbed him quite, you know, horrifically. Well, yeah. Violently stabbed this guy. Goes to Stretch and says, let's go find someone else. Takes a few selfies. And then on their way to find another victim. What, just in the car, like, lol, about to go do another murder? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Them selfies are even on Google as well. Like Shut You can up. search that. Felt cute, might delete later. Yeah. Mad. What? That poor guy. Mm-hmm. It's just minding his own business. Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't like her. See why I was so ragey? Yeah. So after she'd finished the selfie sesh, she's now going to go and find someone else. Ten minutes after the first attack, she spots another man walking his dog. And it was the same bloodthirsty scenario all over again. She got out and she told Stretch to stop the car. She got out with this very small knife, uh, walked up to him and plunged it into him time and time and time and time again. Can you imagine the shock? This man wouldn't have known what was happening. It's broad daylight. She's licking the blood off of the knife, his blood. He feels himself getting dizzy and sick. And then he collapses. And she takes this dog, walks casually back to the car. Another car passes and she waves at the people in it. They get in the car and off they go. That is unreal. Do you know what else is unreal? She stabbed him more than 30 times. Fuck's sake. Mm-hmm. Oh, and then just to, like, really shit on his day, took his fucking dog. Yeah. Oh, that's really annoying. Like, the arrogance of that. It is so arrogant. Yeah, yeah. you're right. Like, oh, look at me, I'm hot shit, because yeah. I'm just stabbing everyone. And, like, above the law. The rules don't apply to me. Just I'll do, do what, what I, I want. want. With no regard for anyone. 
Oh, doesn't it make you so mad? So mad. The audacity mm-hmm. is where we're at now. The guy that she stabbed, he was 56-year-old John Rogers. Luckily, both Robin and John actually survived the attacks. Oh, good. Obviously, both of their injuries were life-threatening. But they gave the descriptions of Joanne to the police as she had a super recognisable star tattoo on her face. So by this point, the police are going crazy. There are blue lights going around the whole place. Like, Herefordshire is on full alert. Everyone's panicking. They are just like, shit, there's a killer on the loose. And then they finally corner them in Hereford. Two officers turn up and they spot this car with Dennity in it talking to the dog on the back seat while Gary Stretch is trying to negotiate stolen property at the front door of one of his associates' house. They arrest Dennehy on the spot. Gary Stretch and one of his friends do what they call in police parlance a runner. They jump in another car and speed off. Something like a car chase goes on for about 20 miles and then Stretch decides to get out and run for it. Now, Mr. Stretch is not built for speed, and of course he's very unfit, and he's stopped. And he turned around to the police officer and said, ah, you've arrested me. Joe and I would have been the next Bonnie and Clyde. All right, mate. Yeah. <laughs> so you can kind of imagine, like, what where he was in terms of his I- idea of what they were doing, like, <sighs> how he imagined it and fantasized about it like it's just gross like the whole thing is giving me the ick it's uh, annoying like how dare you think that much of yourself this next footage was um she's in custody at hereford police station after she was arrested and and this this video clip was taken 40 minutes after she was arrested listen to what she has to say one white four attempted murder and murder attempted murder and murder something so she's just murdered and then attempted to murder two other people and she's laughing and joking on the CCTV camera and says it's like going down for a Sunday roast easy what are you fucking what Joanne just listen to her voice and the shits she does not give so nothing. Ah, oh, it's annoying. What a sad little life. The next day, April third, two thousand and thirteen, the bodies of Lucas and John are discovered. John's neighbour Michelle, the one John called when he was scared about Joanne, remembers hearing the news. We wasn't concerned till we actually noticed he was missing. No one had seen him at all. And next thing we knew, the forensics were around the back of the house. We were praying outside, thinking, please don't let it be John, let him live. If we had known what he meant and what she was going to do at the time, we would have got John out of that house and let him live with us. But how were we supposed to know she was a serial killer? To take John's life, Lucas's life and Kevin's life. Why? Joanne's pre-trial hearing was set for November 18th, 2013. And as you can imagine, no one could believe that someone raised in such a normal family 
could do this. Um, one of the headlines following her arrest read, the baby-faced angel who came a serial killer. Um, so if you Google her, you'll be able to see like her as a child just looking adorable and cute, and you'll see what they mean. It's very difficult to understand quite how far the road is from a nice suburban upbringing to a ditch in Peterborough where you're dumping the bodies of men you've stabbed to death. It's an extraordinarily long road, a very dangerous one and a very destructive one, but she certainly travelled it and took some pleasure in the travelling. And she was free of remorse. Like, she just did not care. She laughed as the proceedings at court took place and she pleaded guilty. And so her lawyer, Karim Khalil, said that shock rippled through the courtroom when she made her plea. It surprised all, I think, but the judge, who seemed entirely satisfied with that result. Um, Her counsel asked for time to speak with her to see whether she really had meant what she just said and returned to tell the court that, yes, she entirely understood the charges against her. She meant to plead guilty, and that was the end of it. Many of the serial killers I've interviewed, obviously as guilty as sin, try to hide behind the criminal justice system and use it as uh, a defence to retreat back into it, uh, to use mitigation. Uh, um, I didn't intend to kill somebody. I had a drink disorder or a drug disorder. I'm not culpable of committing these crimes. Basically, I'm innocent. Joanne Dennehy is not like that. She just loved it. The arrogance of that, I guess, at least, you know, she owned up, like, yeah, I did kill those people. Good. Gary Stretch, he claims that he was manipulated by her. Gary Stretch's position was that he had not known that she was going to kill any of the people that she killed, um, whilst accepting that after the event, um, he was made aware that she had killed people. And the difficulty, of course, that he confronted um, was the assertion that he was a willing participant in covering up those killings once he became aware of them. There's no question in my mind um, that Uh, Dennehy did influence uh, Gary Stretch hugely. Joanne Dennehy is somebody who was very much in the driving seat all the way through the the murders that that she committed, and the men were just there in in a supporting role. She was was the the centre stage actor here, and I think the fact that she was doing this on her own, she wasn't coerced or compelled by by anybody else, does make her quite unique. I don't want to sound like I'm sticking up for Gary, because... Obviously what he did and assisted in was terrible. But he can't have had that much going on in his life at all. Because he wouldn't have I don't think he would have I don't think he would have done it. Oh fuck Gary man. I'm over him. Mm. Yeah, like yeah, he was he I think he was manipulated a bit. But there's plenty of people that don't have a lot going on. Like, you can't be that bored that you just be like, oh, yeah. Well, no, you can't be. He obviously was that bored yeah. um, that and sort of open to being manipulated. He's probably easily manipulated because he didn't have much going on in his life. Well, and yeah, but loads of people don't have anything going on in their lives and they don't go around helping people stab people. Mm. And to be like, oh, I didn't realise that she'd stab people. Shut up, Gary. You knew. 
Like, she got in the car afterwards and he drove her to the next guy. Come on, Gaz. We ain't stupid. No, Gary's done. All right, okay, 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 okay. We can say who the empathetic one is. (laughs) Joanne refused to be spoken to at court. And then she got up and told the court. I don't want to be controlled by anybody. I don't want to be in control by my lawyers, by the police, by anybody. And that's what she told the judge. Get stuffed. Basically, get stuffed, Your Honour. And we know that she didn't say get stuffed. Exactly. We know she didn't. I ain't listening to your rules. <laughs> February 28th, 2014, Judge Justice Spencer sentenced Joanne to a whole life term. She was the first woman in British history to get whole life. And she was sent to Bronzefield Prison and she's still there. Good. Yuck. Ah, oh, this is a really annoying one. Mm-hmm. She's so annoying. Her henchman got prison time too. Leslie Layton got 14 years. And Gary Stretch got two life sentences. The community got some relief. But Michelle Bowles says that that doesn't change the fact that three innocent lives were taken. It's the victim's family as well. They're carrying the life sentences, isn't they? Carefully, he's not going to see his kids like, have kids. Lucas is never ever going to have kids. John, you know, is never going to be around again. None of them are. He wasn't a horrible person. He was one of the loveliest, genuous people you could ever meet. He really was. He would have done anything for anybody. At the time of her imprisonment, author and journalist Christopher Berry D took a special interest in the case. I wanted to really try to get inside how the police were working and how rapidly they caught this very dangerous woman. So he started writing to her and even from inside prison, she's trying to now manipulate someone outside of prison that's taken an interest in her. So even locked away, he says that Joanna's still continuing to wreak havoc. From the day Joanna Dennehy was sentenced to prison, she has exhibited more antisocial behavioural traits in as much as she's tried to escape twice. She wanted to chop the fingers off a, a prison officer and use that on the electronic keypads to get out. That is fucked up. Oh, Joanna. In 2015, Christopher, he went to visit her at the prison and he says she still retains the same murderous impulses. She looked into my eyes and she said to me, Christopher, killing you would be good for me. And it was an ice-cold stare, I can tell you. So, yes, she would have killed me in a heartbeat if she'd had a chance. So that is the story of Joanne Dennehy. I was fully waiting for it. And she escaped just last week and was last seen round the corner from your house. (laughs) She is frightening. I hope she's in a really secure cell, though. Yeah, like she's the type of prisoner that other prisoners would be afraid of. But then again, if you're in an all-woman's prison, her history is just men that she's murdering. So you might be okay. You say that, though, but like, if, I don't know... If you really want a cigarette Mm -hmm. and you can't have a cigarette and you can't have a cigarette, eventually you'd smoke drum, which is disgusting. Mm, True. But so, you know, 
Like, that's what I'd be afraid of, like a kettle on the boil. She'll just be wanting to murder someone, wanting to stab someone, wanting to stab someone. Surely at some point, she was not going to care who. She mm. just needs to have a stab. Wait. What? Is she a younger child? She was. Huh? She was the younger child as well, wasn't she? Didn't they say she had a sister? Oh. Oh, I'm seeing a pattern here, Helen. And you're the youngest child. All right. Ooh, we'll see how this progresses. <laughs> Next time on Devils in the Dark with me, Helen Anderson, and me, Danny Howard, we'll be looking at the poster child of prison reform, author and man of people, Jack Untervega. And yes, you guessed it, he was not all what he seemed. Make sure to subscribe or follow to make sure you never miss an episode of Devils in the Dark. And we would love it if you could leave us a review. We love to hear from you. We do. Special thanks to Woodcut Media and our wonderful producers at Audio Boom Studios. Yay! Yay.